Believe it or not, Christmas is only a few weeks away, and our Christmas Eve services um, are going to be both available online and in person. We plan at least in having one in-person service. We're going to send out a survey a little bit later as we get closer to Christmas to make sure that there is a spot for everyone who would love to join us in person. And frankly, we would love for you to have this opportunity to worship together for our first Christmas Eve in this new space. So invite friends, invite family. We would love to serve you in that way. Also, as the end of the year approaches, we know many of you think of how you're going to end the year generously, and we want to encourage you to be generous to your church. The local church as God designed it, we believe is, we deeply believe is the, is the hope of the world. And it has been an unprecedented season. I'm sure you're tired of that phrase just as much as I am, but it still has been filled with many challenges and opportunities. And yet your generosity this year and in the early months of the pandemic has been absolutely astounding. You have enabled us to one, stay on mission and continue to care for our staff. Number two, we were able to meet thousands of dollars of benevolence and tens of thousands of dollars from ministry partners and other churches across our city, across the nation, and across the world. And then lastly, we have been able to move into our new permanent homes, both here downtown, which has been extraordinarily exciting and beautiful, as well as at our Shawnee campus. We have paid off a significant portion of our debt and we have just been absolutely amazed by your generosity. So thank you, thank you so much for that. That said, we do want you to be aware that we did have an ex we experienced a little bit of a dip back in September as it comes to our giving. And although October has rebounded just a little bit, we're going to be watching and moving forward very prudently in our expenses. Everyone's goal is to continue to work to eliminate the debt so that we can maximize your tithes and offerings directly towards missional initiatives. And so we want to encourage you to keep being generous. And if you're new, we'd also encourage you to jump in this holiday season and be a part of the work that God is doing here through your generosity and the generosity of His people. And as we approach Thanksgiving, we want you to know just how thankful we are for you. We love you a whole lot. And we are so grateful for the ways that so many of you sacrifice, the way that you commit to being generous to your local church and through your local church to impact, impact the broader Kansas City neighborhood and community. So thank you for loving Jesus. Thank you for loving his church. Now let's turn our attention to God's word. If you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking at chapter 20, verses 7 through 15. Revelation chapter 20 verses 7 through 15. Hear now God's word for us. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, 
death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Look at that. It's a perfect shot. And I hit that with a bent club. So you're not worried about getting in trouble? You know, with God? Oh, I think he's got bigger things on his plate. So you're not worried about hell? Let me let you in on a little secret, kid. There is no hell. Seriously? No hell? That's fantastic! So everyone just goes to heaven? Yep. End of story. Even bad people? Yeah, they're, they're, they're in another section, see? They got this thing figured out. Can I hit this? You distracted me. I didn't say anything. I could hear you thinking. I'm thinking about this heaven of yours that's full of bad people. Not full, the tiniest fraction. They're walled in. What if they break out? They're surrounded by a lake of fire. There are fiery lakes in heaven. This is turning into hell. Tell me about it. I just don't understand this bad section of heaven. What if they send you to the wrong place? They make mistakes with paperwork sometimes. I was put in a girls' health class last year and had to watch a very disturbing movie. Calm down. Instead of thinking all morning about what heaven's going to look like, what it's not going to look like, who's where, if there even is a heaven, why don't we just concentrate on this beautiful, carefree day that's in front of us? I'd rather concentrate on something you just said. There might not even be a heaven. I don't know. You seem pretty sure of yourself this morning. So what happens after you die? There's just nothing? Look. You're focusing too much on one little thing that I said. It was just a hunch, okay? A hunch? I'm skipping church based on a hunch? <gasps> all right, all right, don't freak out on me here, kid. They're playing pretty fast and loose with my soul. Listen, I want you to forget everything that I said, okay? Some things can be forgotten, Jay. Just like Jay and Manny, whenever the topic of hell comes up, it brings a host of responses. For some of us, it may bring the response of avoidance. Um, for others, we begin to create our own concept for hell, and usually that's for other people. Or we downplay it as not really that big of a deal as it pertains to ourselves. And for some folks, it's such a big deal, it's the reason you won't follow Jesus. It's just too cruel, more than a lot of people can stand. And so today we get a glimpse of what's often called the final judgment. Hell is revealed, and what we see it actually might surprise us. You see, John, the one recording this apocalypse, has stared evil in the face. As a pastor, John was navigating not just abstract evil somewhere else. Instead, he had friends like Antipas murdered because they trusted who Jesus is and what he had come to do with his coming kingdom. He himself, John, was exiled to an island because he wouldn't keep quiet about Jesus and his kingdom agenda in a beastly world. And when we've cried out, as we see all across the pages of the book of Revelation, how long, how long, O oh Lord, before you bring your justice for those who were slaughtered because of their faithfulness, then we can't help but ache for an answer to this particular question. What will God do with evil in the end? And here we get a glimpse. Because the apocalypse is all about revealing, once again, not just the world in the end, but the world up till the end. And today we get a picture 
of the end of evil. And John interestingly used some risks in terms of the imagery that he used here, because if you start in the wrong place, you may very well end up with the wrong picture. And the glimpse has been distorted and misunderstood by so many in very significant ways, which is why I'm going to say something that sounds a little bizarre. So I want you to buckle up and hang with me. Because I say it because this is both a challenge for many Christians' concept of hell, as well as skeptics. You promise to hang with me? Okay. Here's our thesis for this morning. Hell is better than we often think, but still exceedingly awful forever. Okay, in one sense, this is absolutely absurd, um, because hell is so awful, and it will be extraordinarily awful. And yet, in another sense, it's better than we often think. We can actually make it worse. We can make the morality of hell immoral. And I told you, now, I told you this is going to be weird. I'm not a heretic, so hang with me. But we do hope to correct some hellish distortions. And to do that, why don't you turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Now, as we've been walking through the book of Revelation, we have entitled this series, Everything Sad, Untrue. And one of the big overarching questions is, what is God going to do with evil, that which has made everything sad. It's all over the book of Revelation. And by the time you get to Revelation 19, evil has been growing, it's been conquering, it's been corrupting the planet. Then John sees Jesus on a white horse and he's come to conquer evil itself. Eyes aflame, there's a sword in his mouth. He defeats both beasts, throws them into a lake of fire. Jesus wins this extraordinary victory and then he reigns for a thousand years years. Now, some read that as a literal thousand years. Some see that as symbolic. And while this is important, we actually spent some time talking about this on Monday night in our series, Nothing Else is On, and I'd encourage you to go check that out. After this, this thousand-year reign, Satan is released again, and he gathers yet another army of God's enemies to make a final battle against Jesus and his kingdom. The end is that Satan is defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. That's what we saw in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. Then John sees this huge white throne, and we're to think of a courtroom scene. And this is what we read in verse 11. And every person who has ever existed comes before this great white throne and receives one of two destinies forever, the final judgment. And there's only one of two verdicts. You can either, number one, enter the new creation with Jesus, or number two, enter the lake of fire with Satan. Now, if you don't want the good, perfect Jesus, if you don't want to embrace the lamb on earth, then you get the lake of fire, hell. You see, part of the answer to evil on a cosmic level and in the end is hell. And this is where I want to start because I want to ask this question. What images come to your mind when you think of hell? We see some here right in the text some of fire, some of torment, that there's no end. And then, of course, we begin to import what those exactly mean. We think of Dante's Divine Comedy, and especially his first part entitled Inferno, or Milton's Paradise Lost, which both portray hell as a place of unremitting torture. If you've ever seen a painting or watched a movie, you can naturally think that hell is God's place to torture his enemies forever. Either God does it or he oversees it as it's performed by Satan and his demons. 
which by de facto means God allows torture forever. Maybe hell for you is perceived as kind of a Guantanamo Bay of sorts, a place far from America where we've sent enemies of the state and tortured folks we thought deserved it at a safe distance. And frankly, what most people mean by enemies when even they begin to, you know, play around with this idea in their imaginations are people that are way worse than themselves. This is where the Hitlers of history, of course, get theirs, right? Terrorists, radicals, the truly evil people. All the pain they caused others, this is the time for eternal revenge. They're clamoring to get out, but God won't let them out. And it's usually captured by the phrase, when somebody really ticks us off, we say something like, God's got a special place in hell for that one, right? But the problem with all his cruelty is that that's not what we see in Scripture. And frankly, with this view, you not only get a distorted picture of hell, but you also get a distorted picture of who God really is. You see, if the greatest revelation of God's character is the God-man Jesus, and the greatest window into God's heart is actually the cross, and the greatest sign of maturity for the Christian is to love your enemies, then how can we have an image of God where he delights in torture for eternity? God is not brutal. He's just, he's kind, he's gracious. Torture is not what any good leader does in any kingdom ever, let alone for eternity. But not only that, we get a distortion of ourselves and others. We constantly have our eyes on others who are going to hell because they are the true enemies. We spend our time imagining ways that these evil ones will experience atrocities for eternity. And it cultivates a twisted imagination. And then, of course, skeptics often notice the contradiction. They sniff out the bloodlust and wonder how they can trust such a God from such a people. For that view of hell is truly terrible, unworthy of such a good God. Hell is a place that is exceedingly awful, but it's not that bad, not that kind of bad. You see, hell is better than we often think, but still exceedingly awful forever. So how are we to understand hell? Well, let's take a look actually at the text. In one sense, we could look at many texts and give this robust picture of hell, but today let's take a look at Revelation. Whenever you look at a text, you have to ask yourself, what is the context and what is the genre? And so I want to give you two clarifications. There are others, but here are just a couple from the text. And here's the first context we need to make sense of. One, where is hell? Hell, and location and context matters when it comes to hell, hell is outside the new Jerusalem. Revelation, in Revelation, it's not inside the city. It's outside the city. And this should make us think back to what Jesus said about hell. This is really, really important because John is playing off of what Jesus has taught. You see, Jesus' word choice for hell in Greek is Gehenna. If you read along in the Gospels and Jesus is talking about hell, there's a really good chance that the Greek word behind the English translation of hell is Gehenna. Gehenna was a real place in the first century right outside the city of Jerusalem. It was in the Valley of Hinnom, which was a place in Israel's history where idol worship took place and great violence was performed in that worship. And so it became a very devalued piece of property. And in Jesus' day, it became the place where you burned your garbage. Rather than sanitation trucks like we're used to, coming and picking up our garbage and taking them away to a faraway dump, 
Instead, we see Gehenna was a place where you burned your garbage and the fires would keep on burning into the night. And When you looked over the city walls, you would see them. So inside the walls of Jerusalem were light and life. And outside the walls were the burning fires of a local dump. You see, you cannot understand what John is saying here about hell without knowing what Jesus said, and while also reading the rest of what he describes about God's new creation. You see, John is picking up on this imagery. There is a separation. The never-ending fires outside the city in the lake of fire with life and life abundant in the new Jerusalem. There is this bifurcation. But why the separation? Now we look at the imagery of fire. Remember, we're studying apocalyptic literature and symbols, they point to realities beyond our imagination. To understand hell, we need to understand evil. You see, evil is the corruption of good. God can exist or good can exist without evil, but evil thrives off of distorting what is good. God exists first in perfect goodness, and then we brought evil into God's world. For example, sex is a good when it is within marriage as God has designed it. But adultery we came up with and it breeds destruction. Food is a good that is to be consumed as God designed it. But gluttony we came up with and it destroys and so on. We could go through this long list of how evil corrupts what is good. And sin and evil is always hungry to destroy more. It's kind of like a crack in a windshield. It starts to spread and spread until you can't see anything out your window. Now, we see this as we look across the pages of the book of Revelation with the beast, Satan, and the people of the world. Evil always seems to scale up. More followers, more power, more greed, and its lust is just insatiable. Gehenna, listen, Gehenna is always trying to get into Jerusalem. And this is the language of fire, like the fires of California this summer. It's looking for more fuel and carrying on and decimating everything within its past. Joshua Butler in his book, Skeletons in God's Closet, says it so well. He says, sin is not a quiet roommate. It, couldn't, it could never in a thousand eternities find any way to arrest its own reproduction. But on and on it burns, destroying, seeking to consume whatever is in its path. And not just at the end of Scripture do we see this in the book of Revelation, but actually if we go all the way back to Genesis, at the very beginning, it only takes three chapters for perfect humanity seen in Adam and Eve to spiral into a brother killing another brother. And then by the time we get to chapter 11 of Genesis, we see the world overtaken with exorbitant violence and evil. Hell, this is why, this is an this is why the, the context is so important. What we see God doing here is hell is given boundaries outside the city. A never-quenched fire stoked by the evil within, but it's no longer able to contaminate God's good world. And now we begin to see what is the true picture of hell on the pages of Scripture. Hell is God's way of protecting His new creation from evil. Hell is putting evil in its place forever. Hell is how God stops evil from parasitically living off of his good world. It's not torture. God is protecting his good world from evil. So, hell is better than we often think, but it's still exceedingly awful forever. Because I can hear the pushback. It's like, well, Gabe, what about in chapter 20, verse 10 of Revelation, 
where we see this language of torment. What about that? Well, here's why this is still exceedingly awful, because it's frankly beyond our imaginations to, compliment, to, to contemplate. The source of the destruction, though, is absolutely essential. You see, there's a significant difference between torture and torment. Torture is the action of someone bringing great suffering to another. The word torment in our text, if I give you a little bit of insight to the Greek behind this word, bazanazo, it means an idiom, literally to be tormented in soul, to experience mental torment involving sorrow mixed with anger, to experience anguish, to be tormented in one's heart. This is brought to clarity through Loanida, a brilliant, brilliant Greek lexicon that helps us better understand the text in which we find our translations. I heard it described like this. I can be tormented by a headache, or someone can torture me by hitting me in the head with a baseball bat. Both result in my head hurting. Torment arises internally. Torture is external. I can be tormented by my own sin and my own struggles, but that is radically different from God torturing me. And none of this is to make hell less horrifying, just horrifying for the right reasons. <laughs> because that kind of torment, which happens to Satan and the beasts, by the way, they're not the agents carrying this out. When it comes from our own distorted hearts, it can take away our appetite so that you can't sink your teeth into a delicious free meal that's right in front of you. It can lead to despair so that no comforting touch feels trustworthy. It can make a loving father look like a suffocating dad. And there we have hell. God isn't torturing people or spiritual beings. He's given us over to ourselves, to our pursuit of evil, to a life without his being present. You see, hell is an expression of God's wrath. And crucial to God's wrath, as we see in Romans chapter 1, is God just giving us over to our own self-destructive desires. I love the way Tim Keller says in The Reason for God, Hell, then, is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. In short, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. And any life without Him is an ever-growing torment that will never come to an end, an intensifying thirst that will never be quenched. And that, that is beyond our description of awful. And He won't let those who have chosen life without Him hurt those who have chosen life with Him. You see, God upholds human dignity and that He allows us to choose and He gives us what we want. This is why Lewis's quote is spot on where he describes that heaven is a place where we say to God, thy will be done. And hell is a place where God says to us, thy will be done. You see, the new Jerusalem is ruled by a king. And hell, being much less like Guantanamo Bay, is more like a democracy where we have willfully locked the true king out. But God won't let it leak out either. And it doesn't get better with each passing day. Rather, it becomes a democracy bent on death forever. I mean, how many times do we see that those who have exorbitant riches or fame get everything they want? Do they instantly start to choose a life that breeds better health? No, it often breeds even further self-destruction. We get a window into human nature right in the here and now. And in many ways, you and I, we cast a ballot every day. 
This decision, it forms us. In the same way, when you take a cup of coffee in the morning, it informs longing, hunger, desire for the next day and affirms that decision as it begins to create neuropathways and physiology. Every time we vote for our will to be done, it's harder to imagine embracing his. Now imagine this over eternity. And God's trying to show us that we're choosing now and what we're choosing now before it's too late. As we've said before in Revelation, when there's tribulation and pain that comes, all of this God allows so that it might be a wake-up call, that it might lead us to repentance, to turn to Him, to heed His invitation, to come into the city and to live under His reign. But as the old saying goes, for so many, it's better to rule in heaven than serve, or rule in hell than serve in heaven. And so He'll let us. As awful as it is, it's the most righteous form of judging evil. And because God respects us as human beings, even the worst of us, even you, he won't force you to choose heaven. That's why other views of hell don't work. Some want universalism. It's the idea that eventually everyone is going to get into heaven no matter what you're like. Then you go back to the problem that Jay had in the video up top. When does injustice stop? Where are the boundaries? Some want to annihilate evil. This is the idea that every evil, eventually every evil person just ceases to exist. God doesn't say, hey, if you don't love me, I'll kill you, and somehow engage in some eternal euthanasia. That sounds atrocious. That's not who God is. Some want to believe that God redeems every evil person. And this is the idea that eventually everyone who rejects God will finally recognize the error of their ways and be saved. This is partly out of a desire to somehow make the suffering of hell redemptive. But that misses the point. See, God isn't torturing sinners to wake them up in hell. They are tormenting themselves. Like God is saying, love me or I'll lock you in the basement till you agree to love me back. That sounds like a terrible scenario that once again distorts God's character. You see, God's version of hell that we see on the pages of Scripture is better than any of those but it's still exceedingly awful forever if you choose it. You see, God is saying, I love you. If you love me and only me, you can come and live with me and my people forever. But if not, you can go your own way, and I don't want you to, because what you want will destroy you. But if that's what you choose, okay, you just cannot ever come into my city, the place of shalom. And so, the reality is, amidst all this, I want you to hear me, you have a choice right now. You don't have to get, um, you don't get to make the choice later. As we read in the text this morning, a book is opened at the end of time and our destiny is based upon what we have chosen on earth. And the choice isn't to be a better person, it's to embrace a better Lord. You can't run your life. Jesus has to. And he knows, as Alexander Soltzheitzen in his book, The Gulag Archipelago, reflecting on his own wrongful and unjust imprisonment under the Soviet regime, he knew if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? You see, someone had to deal with our evil, your evil. As I said above, part of the answer to evil for all eternity is hell. But the other part is Jesus. There are two options. Not a good life and a bad life. Those aren't the options. 
but a good king are you. And praise God, we have a king named Jesus who went outside the city, who died on a cross, who took evil into himself, who paid the penalty that we might no longer be tormented by our own sin, all that we might be invited into his city with him and under him. Not to know a freedom from God or others, that is a freedom of sin, but a freedom for God and for others if we will embrace Jesus here and now, if we choose him as both our Lord and our Savior. Then he'll eradicate evil in us. He makes us whole. He guides us in our daily decisions toward realized wholeness. And he, over time, one day, fully, but over time, makes us agents of peace and joy and love here and now in his forever city one day, but in this city today. So don't let a faulty view of hell keep you from the true person of Jesus. He's better than we often understand. And he's given you a choice. And listen, the choice we make today influences who we are becoming tomorrow and for eternity. To say no now means you may never say yes tomorrow. So beware. So I ask you, will you surrender to him now? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your justice. I thank you for your compassion and that your kindness leads us to repentance. And so, God, I want to pray for everybody who is watching this in this moment. If they're on the precipice of making this decision, I pray, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit, you would move them to embrace Christ and abandon the trajectory of hell. And if you're watching this right now and you have yet to surrender your life to Jesus, I'm going to walk you through how to do this. It's as simple as A, B, C. A, admit that you're a sinner, that you're broken, and that you deserve hell. B, Believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died on the cross for your sins. And C, confess that you need Him to die on the cross for you and give your life over to Him. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as a simple prayer saying, Lord, I'm a sinner in need of Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Forgive me, I am yours. Would you do that today? God, thank you so much for the invitation to dwell with you for eternity in your glorious city of peace, the New Jerusalem. For all those who prayed in this moment, may you bless them, may you guide them, may you direct them to a church home where they can grow. And if it be your will to direct them here to Christ Community's downtown campus, may you guide us together to grow in our walk with Christ together. We praise you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. And so now we turn to a meal where we remember that true nourishment cannot come apart from Christ. For all other tables starve our souls. It's here at the Lord's Supper we remember Jesus' sufficient work on our behalf. Through common broken bread, we remember his body broken for us, and through common juice, we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have elements available, I'd encourage you to grab friends and family and roommates and gather around these elements and partake in remembrance of him. But before you do, let's remember what's been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
whenever you're ready, partake of his grace afresh.